Before we get to the episode, a quick word from our shameless commerce division. Nayan, what what is uh, what is NFJC and NSMC meant to you? Yeah, so I think I joined NSMC about three years ago now, and I feel like as a clinical nephrologist, it can often be hard to find your footing. For researchers, it can often be easier because you're writing papers and you're traveling and talking about your research. Uh, more difficult for people who are more clinically based, and I feel like the NSMC really gave me the tools to be able to produce alternative means of scholarly output, but more importantly, it integrates you into this community of really great people who are genuinely excited about what they're doing to provide mentorship and guidance. And, you know, I went to NKF, which was the first in-person conference I had been to since the start of the pandemic. And you start meeting these people in person and it really enhances your experience when you're when you're traveling to these different cities. So I feel like it's really benefited me from a uh, professional standpoint, but more importantly, a personal standpoint as well. I love that. I love that. Priya, what do you got? Um, I'm currently one of the interns right now, and I think this has really just been a wonderful, eye-opening experience to social media. You know, I was one of the kids that grew up with Facebook and Instagram and all those things, and I never really understood the pursuit of knowledge in social media. I always thought it was just connecting with friends and family, seeing pictures and what people are up to. But there is something so much bigger than just that. It opens you up to all sorts of different people inside, you know, this wonderful world that we call nephrology. I've met so many people and it's also just helped me to reach out to people if I have questions to be a little bit more confident just shooting someone a, a message via Twitter or, you know, sending a cold email to someone. Those are things that I might not have felt that confident doing, say, you know, however many months ago. And meeting people that are great mentors and helping me to not only learn things in social media, but also gain knowledge in nephrology itself, because of course, this is medical education. And this is just to push all of us to be more knowledgeable and to be uh, better nephrologists in whichever field you're in, whether it's clinical, whether it's research, whether it's bench work. And this internship has taught me so much I've getting like a lot of skills. I am currently in the visual abstract rotation, if you will. So I've been cranking out some really good visual abstracts, and they're only really good because of the mentorship of the faculty that have been helping me. They, you know, get back to me and they're like, you should, you know, tweak this or tweak that. And these are the types of little interactions that I get throughout the day and throughout the week that are just making me better. And I take all those information and all the things I learned and I take it back to my learners, you know, back into my own real world that is outside of the internet. And I definitely recommend it. I'm having a great time and I'm learning a lot. And that's really what this is about. Nice. Todd, do you have anything to say? I would agree with Priya that for a long time, I never realized the biomedical community presence on Twitter in particular. Um, you know, I created a, a Twitter account in 2009 
and then didn't sign on again until like 2017. You know, now that I've gotten into it and and it's been a wonderful, I mean, it is one of the primary ways that I follow the literature now, you know, because over time, you know, you kind of curate who you follow, what their interests are, their their fields. And I mean, before the table content shows up in my email inbox, someone is tweeting about the latest study and not just, hey, check out this study, but there's a tutorial about it. And then, you know, then the study authors are commenting and so it, it's been a great resource for that. And then just it's a you know a great, great way to network and meet others. You know, I don't know that I would be talking to you wonderful folks on this podcast if I didn't have a, a Twitter account and, and interacted on the topic. Uh, so it's been it's been great. So I'll finish this off. Uh, so I started using Twitter mainly for what I do best is arguing. I remember, you know, in 2013, Joel and I were on the other side of a contrast because this AKI debate. I can say a lot of things about uh, how how all this left Twitter social media has meant to me, but briefly, you learn a lot. Uh, I've learned a lot in all these conversations and, uh, you know, teaching, learning, uh, that's one. Uh, Secondly, I think it's made me a way better communicator, Uh, talking and tweeting, especially tweeting makes you write things very succinctly and write very clearly because you don't want to be misunderstood. Uh, It's opened so many doors for me, research collaborations, invitations, papers. We have had a lot of fun uh, doing all this. But, you know, the most important thing, I think, is is this community that we have built up. Uh, And again, it happened organically. We didn't aim when we started these and and, and doing these projects that we would have this, you know, group of people that would be, feels like home. Uh, It feels so much, you know, when you go to a conference, as Nayan was alluding, you you know all these people, these people on your phone that you have been chatting to and arguing with for so many uh, hours uh, over so many many months and years uh, but most importantly you know this has been a lot of fun so thanks to everyone who has come along with us on this journey it's, it's been fun and i think we should keep having fun and now on to the episode okay who's making that noise i just need to know yeah there is a tingling tumbling sound there's 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 something on a desk that's vibrating oh i hope it's not me <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. God damn it. Cold opening number two. Right. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Welcome to Freely Filtered. The irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications, but not tonight. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have nine. Hey everybody, my name is Nan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I tweet at Captain Chloride. My only conflict of interest here is that my wife is on the uh, sepsis committee at our hospital, so I had actually heard of these antibiotics before this paper came out. We also have Priya. Hey everyone, my name is Priya Yenaberry. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Indiana University. Uh, I don't have any conflicts of interest, and I tweet at prerenal AKI. That's pretty good. 
out like that. Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramat. I'm a nephrologist and uh, epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at hswapnil. I don't have any conflicts except that Piptaz Vanco was our standard first-line drug for empiric treatment until the concern with AKI came up. So I'm really happy this study was done. And we have a special guest tonight. We have study author, Dr. Miano. Dr. Miano, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Todd Miano. I'm a critical care pharmacist and epidemiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. I tweet at Miano81. My conflict of interest would be that I never came into this study with equipoise, you might say. I, I've been skeptical of the association for many years, so that, that's probably colored a lot of my interpretation. So, Todd, what we're talking about tonight is your study. It's a retrospective analysis, Piptazo and Vanco, trying to analyze whether it is truly nephrotoxic. This has been on our radar for a while. There's been, I remember it was just a few years ago that this kind of emerged as an identified cause of AKI, is that uh, there were a number of retrospective analysis that noted increased creatinine, and because of our definition of AKI is completely creatinine-based, this increased creatinine triggered the diagnosis of AKI, and it seemed to be associated with Piptazo. But I remember FJC did a, in 2016, wow, that is a deep cut, back in 2016, Am I right about that one? That's 2016, yeah. yeah, And, and that was one of the better trials, right? So, so one of the big concerns is that uh, sick people get vancopiptaz and sick people are going to get AKI. So how do you differentiate, right? The sickest people get vanco uh, and, and piptaz. Otherwise, you would be giving simpler antibiotics. So how do you differentiate that from, you know, the, the antibiotic being just an epiphenomena or a friendly fire? Uh, and this the study we discussed in 2016 was actually pretty good because they used a, a good control group. So that was like, hey, you know, maybe there is something really going on here. So, so that's the study that we discussed six years ago. But the only outcome was an, a, an increase in AKI defined by changes in creatinine. And there was concerns even back then. I mean, there was a, a there was an excellent article by our friends at Palm Credit, Josh Farkas, I think, wrote a really nice blog. Thank you. Josh Farkas wrote a really nice blog where he introduced me to the concept of pseudo- it was called pseudo-AKI? Is that the mm-hmm. Pseudo-toxicity, yeah. Pseudo-nephrotoxicity. Pseudo-nephrotoxicity in which you antagonize uh, tubular secretion of creatinine, and so you get a bump in creatinine. And he, in that article back in 2016, he was identifying some of the, the same threads that Todd was pulling on. And these threads were, as soon as you stop the piptazo, the creatinine fell very, very quickly. When you had AKI due to other antibiotics or AKI with other antibiotics, not necessarily due to it, when you stop the antibiotic, the AKI would slowly get better, not very quickly. And that that just looked like an antagonized tubular secretion. So it's interesting that this has been a signal that people have been talking about for a while. And Todd, help me out. Has any study ever shown increased dialysis or increased mortality with Piptazo? So very limited. I've been following this topic like you all have for, for many years. Um, as Swapnil kind of alluded to, the, the first studies I kind of just wrote off as all confounding by indication. You know, you had patients who were treated with vancomycin, and then they compared those who got Piptazo versus no gram-negative coverage. And those are, you know, dramatically different populations, you know, folks who have an indication for gram-negative versus those that do not. So so it's that's really, you know, so I, I kind of, broke those studies off. But over time, studies continued to accumulate. 
better studies comparing to other beta-lactams. And, you know, the signal is remarkably consistent. And, you know, now there's over 50 of these studies that have looked at the association between piptazo and creatinine-defined AKI. And so I believe it. I mean, I the, the association with creatinine, I think, is a real association. But, you know, what always bothered me about the story was that there's never been a plausible mechanism of synergistic nephrotoxicity. Todd, hold on. Can we think of other examples where it takes two drugs? Because the whole point of this always has been, oh, it's not just Piptazo. It's Piptazo plus Vanco. And I'm like, that's interesting. We don't see that too often. Can you think, or can anybody, not just Todd, can anybody else think of this, you know, two drugs to make uh, nephrotoxicity? The only scenario where I think you might expect that is is if it was a pharmacokinetic interaction. For example, if vancomycin was metabolized rather than eliminated through the kidneys, and there was a drug that inhibited its metabolism and caused increased concentrations, that's where you could have a non-nephrotoxic drug increase the nephrotoxicity. So, a, so a voclosporin plus tacro would be a great exactly right. right. This would purportedly be a pharmacodynamic mechanism where you have two mechanisms of toxicity that interact in a synergistic fashion. But here, seemingly, you have piperacillin tazobactam that is not known to be nephrotoxic outside of interstitial nephritis that is somehow increasing the nephrotoxicity of vancomycin. And so, it's there's never really been a, a clear or plausible explanation for how that would happen. Uh, Joel, you mentioned voclosporin and tacrolimus. Did you mean that they are both calcineurin inhibitors, right? So why not say tacrolimus with ritonavir or, or something like that? Because or a calcium channel blocker, yeah. I said voclosporin. I meant voriconazole. Sorry. Oh, yeah, or ketoconazole, yep. whatever, yeah. I bring that up because I experienced it once. I have never <laughs> seen such a high tacro level in my life. We just talked about a case today of a tacrolimus level of 184. That's the highest wow. I've ever seen. It, yeah. And what was the interaction? Paxlovid. Right. Ritonavir. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 I should not do that. Um, but to go back, uh, before, <laughs> we, before we go into the Paxlovid territory, uh, with vancomycin also, so the concern has been that uh, you see, you know, like the old vancomycin toxicity was, you know, Mississippi mud and the impurities, and that all went away with purified forms. But even then, these case reports do keep coming. And, and it's hard to tease out because a high vancomycin level, is it causing toxicity or is it the AKI causing, you know, high vancomycin yeah. level? So that's one. Are you questioning whether vancomycin is nephrotoxic? Yes, sort of. Some people do. And if you look at the, there is a case series uh, in Nephron, uh, J.C. Velez is the first author. I mean, the cool part about that case series is that it came together on ASN communities. You know? Someone put up a case saying, hey, have you seen this where you give vancomycin and there's AKI, but the creatinine goes up very fast. And a bunch of people came together. I think Ross Nesbitt, Nitin Karakala, John uh, uh, Arthur, the you know different people on ASN communities came together and they pulled their cases into this. But they show this very rapid rise in creatinine. Now, you do see rapid rises in creatinine if there is, say, rhabdomyolysis. You know, there's a hypercatabolic state, but they didn't have a hypercatabolic state. And the suspicion there was that, you know, there is AKI that is happening. But, but in addition to that, there is something happening with the tubular secretion, which is being blocked by vancomycin, which may make the creatinine go up even faster. So, again, not disputing AKI, but saying that maybe it looks worse than it is because of the vancomycin. So maybe that's how the, you know, that, that story makes a lot of sense. I think you can make a case for true nephrotoxicity with vancomycin there. So there are some randomized controlled trials that 
have, you know, I think fairly definitively shown that it's associated with a higher risk of creatinine-defined AKI. So the Zephyr study randomized vancomycin versus linazolid for patients with hospital-acquired pneumonia, and the rate of creatinine-defined AKI was about threefold higher. Now, that could be due in part to creatinine secretion, as you pointed out, but th- there's a lot of animal model data that shows, you know, clear kidney damage in, in mice and in rats other than creatinine. So monitor with like Kim1, NGAL, other damage biomarkers. So, so it's it's a, at least a more plausible story than, than people. Well, and we have objective evidence when you see CAS, right? I mean, you, you do get the whole yeah. CAS nephropathy yeah. with, uh, with vancomycin. Yeah, so cast, I think it's with uromodulin, you know, leading to a, you know, in part, I guess, obstructive AKI in some patients. So someone's got to say the word. Someone's got to say they got nanosphere, <laughs> nanospheres of vancomycin. I mean, I don't know what a nanosphere is, but it sounds cool, right? I want to have my patients with that. No, no, I don't want my patients at nanospheres. But when you look at like the attributable risk of AKI from vanco, it's not like an aminoglycoside. It's not no. that toxic. No. But it's there, right? Yeah. And and it's not you, you mentioned linazolid, but the same thing was done with ceftaroline. Like all of these other MRSA treatments, when they get their approval, they go up against vancomycin. And then you can just look at those studies and look at the risk of AKI. And in consistently the vanco has a higher signal. Despite this coming up, when Josh talked about it, uh, for some reason, I, I read about it and I thought about it, but cystatency never entered my head. So it's, it's really brilliant that you decided to do that. In hindsight, it is like, of course, uh, but uh, for six years, I have known this, but I never thought about cystatency. How did you? Well, you know, I, I think chance favors the prepared mind, as, as they say. You know, I, I had been thinking about this, the lack of a mechanism and what could be explaining it. And I was on rounds one day and we had a patient on Bactrim and, and we were talking about this creatinine secretion mechanism. And then it just kind of hit me. Well, maybe that's maybe that's also applicable to Piptazo in, in vancomycin. And so I started thinking about that and, and how to test it. And then, you know, as you say, other people were thinking about this too. I, I came across the Palm Crit blog and, and uh, when I saw uh, Josh talking about it, I was like, okay, actually this maybe this is really the thing to go after. So then it was how to test it. And I just very lucky that I worked with some really brilliant, awesome colleagues and mentors. So I feel the same way. I feel the same way that I'm lucky to work with such smart people. It helps. It really helps. So Nula Meyer leads the, the messy perspective sepsis cohort. So it's a that's a terrible name. Messy. Well, no, it's <laughs> what do you? I guess you want Neymar or it's you it's know. a very clean study. Right. Okay, it, right. it's an extremely clean and neat study. <laughs> You're right. Yes. So it, it's a study of the molecular epidemiology, molecular mechanisms of organ failure in patients with sepsis. And so they've been enrolling patients since 2008, and they obtain blood samples. So patients with sepsis admitted to the MICU, they obtain blood samples at baseline and roughly two days after. And so they had all this stored plasma. And so we started saying, what could we measure in this cohort that would get at this question? And we didn't have urine, so we couldn't look at NGAL or Kim1 or other things, but we had plasma, and so we could look at cystatin C. And so as I started learning about it, I, you know, it's freely filtered in the glomerulus. Nice. But it, right. Good one. Right. And, uh, but it, it's, it doesn't undergo tubular secretion. <laughs> and so it, so many good ones. <laughs> And so it's so it really seemed like it would allow us to directly test that hypothesis. 
Okay, so just just a little sustentancy question. The whole, what I understand, sustentancy freely filtered, then effectively reabsorbed, yeah, and then fully metabolized yeah. in the proximal tubule. That's what they say. So my question is, if you have proximal tubule damage and you can't reabsorb it, that shouldn't affect it, right? Since it's freely filtered, you'll just then excrete it in the urine, right? You would think so, and I think there have been some studies of measuring it in the urine as a damaged biomarker based on the mechanism that that you described. That you shouldn't see it in the urine, but if you do, then it's you know perhaps a marker of, of damage. Evidence of proximal tubule damage. Interesting. Okay. Why don't you hit us with some methods? Yes, I will hit you with some methods. Yeah, that's the least spontaneous <laughs> ever. This is just like, man, this, there's just too many good ones here. <laughs> seeing how the sausage is made makes it really unappetizing. <laughs> You're never going to want to come back. I'm like, well, it's more like, I'm like, all right, maybe I could do this. Like, <laughs> so, so in fact, what Todd was talking about before uh, fits very well with, you know, the methods. This was the uh, messy uh, study, which seems like a very clean prospective cohort study, uh, the molecular epidemiology of sepsis in the ICU. So it seems to be enrolling patients in the intensive care unit. Is it UPenn only? Yeah, a single yeah, center? You, yeah, okay. Yeah. So it, it's been running at UPenn for, for a long time, as, as Todd's mentioned. The criteria for the MESI study itself is, is very clean. It's like, it's very pragmatic. Anyone who is in the ICU with sepsis, severe sepsis or septic shock based on the sepsis 2 criteria, which I guess, you know, they're old criteria, but this is when the, the, uh, the study was uh, incepted or started. So sepsis with, I think, organ perfusion or hypotension is what sepsis 2 criteria would apply here. And, and as long as they're willing to give consent and be that uh, there is no lack of commitment to life-sustaining measures. So someone in whom you are doing active care and willing to consent, they were part in the messy trial study rather, and they got a bunch of measurements done, right? And there were biobank samples, which I guess were very useful uh, for this study. For this study in particular, because the the uh, comparison is going to be vancomycin with peptides versus vancomycin and cefepime. Uh, now, ideally, of course, you would do a randomized control trial, but you know, this is uh, this is done in hindsight uh, for an idea that was brewing in Todd's brain for many, many years. So, so you went back and tried to identify patients who got either vancopeptase versus vancocefepime. The, the antibiotic had to be started within 48 hours of admission to the ICU because you don't want someone, you know, who have been there for a while and got some other infection, I guess. And the antibiotics had to be given for more than 48 hours. Uh, so not just one or two doses. So that's one. And the exclusion is that anyone who already had AKI, right? Anyone who was on dialysis or who had end-stage kidney failure. And AKI here is defined as, you know, 50% higher creatinine than before baseline, I guess. Uh, those were the broad uh, exclusion criteria for, for inclusion in this particular study. Uh, now, in addition to that, then this is where things get a little bit, not messy, but a little bit complicated, uh, is that... Uh, well, you would expect things to be messy in the messy... In the messy yeah. trial. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so the primary outcome, of course, is the creatinine and system Tendency, uh, two days after the antibiotics are started, but there's much more here. Has KDGO established a definition of AKI based on cystatency? They have not. No. So how did you, Todd, how do you determine AKI with cystatency then? So as Swapna will, will probably mention, so the primary analysis was of change in biomarker from, from baseline to, to day two as a continuous measure. Can you explain that for the why? Why did you guys pick forty-eight hours, not longer? 
Well, so that's where that's when we had the data. So so Messi collects plasma at, at day zero and at day two. And so the question was And what are they I'm sorry, day zero is what in Messi? And so this is gets to some of the complexity of the of No, I get it. I get so, it. That's why I'm asking. So blood draws in Messi are anchored around ICU admission. So, so this is forty eight hours after admission. Yeah. That's your day two. In the underlying cohort study, blood's drawn at admission to the ICU and then at day two. And so within this cohort study, we're wanting to identify patients who got antibiotics of interest and then identify of those patients who had blood draws that properly aligned with, you know, a priori defined windows that would make sense. So we wanted to look at cystatin C concentration during measured during the 24-hour window prior to initiation of antibiotics, and then 48 hours after that. And so because the timing of blood draws was not anchored around antibiotic time zero, but rather ICU admission, there wasn't a perfect alignment for all patients. So that's the reason why, although we included 739 patients in the study, only a subset, 192, had cystatin C measurements that appropriately drawn drawn and made sense to analyze. They didn't have cystatin C actually measure at the time. This is frozen samples that you were able to- Yeah. So we, you know, like most other places, I would imagine we don't use cystatin C clinically. And so everyone had BUN measured and creatinine measured clinically. So we, you know, pulled those from the EHR and then specifically measured cystatin C and stored plasma samples. Priya, at Indiana University, they using cystatin C? We use it a lot in the outpatient setting, maybe for, you know, our muscular adolescents or younger adults or just things that really don't make sense. We haven't really been using it inpatient, though, so this is going to be pretty interesting as we walk through this paper. What's what they do at UW? Yeah, same thing. So outpatient, but you know, I think it's also the practicality, right? I mean, I don't think there's any reason not to use it. I mean, I think there's value in patient, but how? What's the turnaround time? The turnaround times, yeah, crazy, right? There's the practical issues with using cystatin C as an inpatient. Swap at Ottawa is is cystatin C sometime in the next decade. So so it's been available at the so we are right next to the children's hospital, uh, and for some reason the the children's hospital and I think in Peach it's more prevalent. They have been doing cystatin C forever. So our samples, if I ask for it, it gets shipped there. It's not paid for by the insurance, right? So the hospital does it. But again, like Nayan said, the turnaround is like a week, and we often do it only when you know in the chronic outpatient setting when you know I'm like oh the creatinine doesn't make sense here. Maybe there's something going on. So we ask for cystatin C. So I have not thought about cystatin C in AKI, except, you know, on Twitter, uh, I think it's Erin Barreto, who's been a champion of cystatin C in AKI and and, uh, and others. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sure she's not the only one. People have been talking about cystatin C in AKI as a superior biomarker. Uh, so it's, it's I think this is an exciting area. But all things being equal, would you want cystatin C or something like NGAL, right? I mean, so many times we're thinking about tubular injury and differentiating between hemodynamic causes of AKI. So I, I, I wonder about using something like NGAL, Kim, one other things. The, the question of, of changes in kidney function versus injury is, especially with nephrotoxins, is a key question. It's applicable with this drug-drug interaction. It's applicable with ACE inhibitors, with NSAIDs, with tacrolimus, right? So, so I think you need to measure something that measures function, like cystatin C, but also you need an injury biomarker as well. So, you know, I think a panel of markers is is what would be ideal, but that's even farther away, I would imagine. Did you guys look at any any biomarkers in this study? We did not. We didn't really. We, we only had urine in like 
25 patients. So we, we didn't, we couldn't really look at it, but we're working on a pilot study now where we're, well, I'm writing a proposal for it to, to measure urine in folks on the antibiotics and, and try to measure some of those. Prospective. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Swap. Keep going. Yeah, so, so the primary outcome uh, was this uh, change in creatinine and change in cystatin C at uh, day two, which could be, you know, maybe 48, maybe 72 hours. And and the figure one in the paper is really nice because it explains, you know, all the nuances in a, in a figurative graphical form that Todd was talking about, you know, when stuff was drawn and when stuff was not drawn. In addition to cystatin C, because they didn't have cystatin C in every one, they also looked at uh, BUN uh, as something that, you know, if it is tubular secretion of creatinine, that's an issue, uh, then. BUN would not be affected. And the advantage again with the BUN is that creatinine and BUN were not collected as part of the messy trial. They were collected as care for the patient. So that was available in the EMR at, uh, at UPenn. So they could easily access the BUN and, and creatinine for all the all the patients who were included in, in, in this uh, study. So in addition to that, they did calculate some ratios. So cystatin C to creatinine ratio, BUN to creatinine ratio at baseline and day two. And, and they did look at secondary clinical outcomes, which were um, AKI through day 12, day 14, sorry, a dialysis and 30-day mortality. Now, this is the easy part. The, the data collection also, you know, it was done for the messy part but the analysis now this is where things get a little bit more messy uh not really messy but complicated <laughs> that's the worst part we're gonna, we're gonna have to like times. we're gonna have to do a tally of how many times we're gonna uh, use that one it sounds like a drinking game actually it's a drinking game <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. 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 No, I think I, I think Nine and I are already yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you are you're half incoherent uh, so <laughs> and that's better than most times this is actually pretty good so the the key aspect as we talked about earlier is about confounding is is selection bias or confounding is that patients who get Vanco ceftas might be different. Uh, Cefepam may be different than people who get Vanco. You know, it's not an RCT. Uh, how do you take care of this? So you could do logistic regression, for example. That's something that is commonly done. The other thing you could do is you could do propensity score matching. Uh, and if you have, you know, a thousand patients, you do propensity score matching, you throw out a bunch of them, you end up with 200 and 200. In this case, you have about 200 and 200 patients. So, you know, you can't necessarily use propensity score matching, but you can use the propensity score to the inverse probability treatment weighting to come up with a cohort. Uh, and it looks like what was done is there were multiple imputations done of the data set. And, and that was used to create the uh, cystatin C data set uh, because the numbers actually, you know, if you look at table uh, one, you know, like I think this came up during the chat where Joel pointed out that in the vancopiptase, you got 297 in the unweighted, but in the weighted cohort, you got 370. So the number actually goes up. So it's not cloning, but, you know, it's sort of like that where, you know, because of imputation, you are have multiple data sets and possibly, you know, you're sampling some people more than others. Am I sort of putting it very crudely? And I, I can add to that as... Instead of adding that, why don't you start and pretend I'm five years old? And explain what the hell's going on. Yes, yes, yes please. So, <laughs> so as, as Swatlo said, confounding by indication is the key issue here. The first thing is to measure appropriate variables that are risk factors for acute kidney injury. We included a long list of risk factors for acute kidney injury, past medical history, vital signs, mechanical ventilation, laboratory values. So try to have a long kind of comprehensive list of potentially confounding variables. So once you've identified your confounding variables, so, you know, what's the right approach to uh, analytically 
control for that confounding. So as, as Swatlow said, you can do multivariable regression or propensity score approaches. There are a number of different ways to implement propensity scores. So we chose inverse probability weighting for a couple of reasons. The first is that it allows you to re retain all patients in the sample, and it makes a very clear contrast. So it's, it estimates the average treatment effect in, in the target population. So, you know, in propensity score matching, for example, you, you get a, an average treatment effect in, in the patients who were matched, which may or may not represent, you know, reflect the, the treatment effect in the overall population. So, you know, the, the propensity score is a probability of being treated conditional on the confounders that you include in the model. And the, the genius of the propensity score is that if you condition on the propensity score, it's, it's mathematically equivalent as conditioning on all the covariates that went into the model. So inverse probability weighting is rather than matching on that score, each person is weighted by the inverse of the probability of receiving the treatment that they were in fact treated with. So for treated patients, it's one over the propensity score. For control patients, it's one over one minus the propensity score. So the propensity score includes all the information about the associations between covariates and treatment. And so you're basically waiting on that information and you're reweighting the patients in a way that it removes associations between baseline confounders and, uh, and treatment. And so, and you examine that by looking at covariate balance in the weighted population. And if your covariates are balanced, you've removed confounding. Help me out. What were the big confounding in this? Because, you know, when I think about Vanco and Cefepime and Vanco and Piptazo, I mean, those six and one half dozen the other. I mean, I don't, what were the big confounding here? So so if you look across the, the two groups. So I'm, I should look at table one. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah. So and look at the uh, SMD, the standardized uh, mean differences in the, in the middle and in the last column. So the middle column is the standardized mean differences in the unweighted cohort. So, for example, if you look, if you go down, look at the admission source, whether it was the ED. So, for Vanco uh, Cefepime, it was like 56% versus 46% for Vanco Peptas in the unweighted cohort. And when you look at the weight, it's like 52-50, right? So, the SMD goes down, yeah, yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it gets yeah. closer to zero. So, it's the SMD. Uh, if the SMD gets closer to zero, that means you're, you know, now the confounding has been taken care of. Yeah, and so if you, in general, across all the covariates, the Piptazo group looked like it was at higher baseline risk for acute kidney injury. So they those patients were a little older. They had worse kidney function at baseline. Their Apache 3 score was higher. And you saw differences that you might expect because Piptazo has anaerobic coverage, whereas Cefepime doesn't. Intra-abdominal infections were more common in the Piptazo arm. Um, patients with malignancy were more common in the Cefepime arm because, you know, we commonly use Vank Cefepime for neutropenic fever. So some of those things were driving differences in, in the groups. And, and some of that too, you know, I, I think different institutions have what is their workhorse antibiotic combination. In some places, that's Vank Cefepime. In others, it's Vank Zosin. That's what I was going to say here is I'm interested. You said this is a single center study, but there's like, why, why are some people using Vank Cephalopeam? Some people are using Vank Zosin, right? I mean, you can see some, some issues with anaerobic coverage, blah, blah, you know, CNS penetration, et cetera. But usually institutions have, this is our broad spectrum antibiotic cocktail, right? This is our martini for sepsis. Especially coming out of the ED with bundles and such. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, at our hospital bank, Piptazo and Cefepime are, are not restricted. So there are definitely patterns that you see and tendencies. And well, Zosin is used in this instance, Cefepime in the other, um, but there's still enough of the butterfly effect. There's, there's enough random, you know, depending on what resident is on call at 12 a.m. when they're admitted. And, you know, so there is some some randomness in the selection, but there's enough systematic indication driving the treatment selection that, that you do see meaningful differences in baseline risk of, of AKI. Todd, what do you reach for? Broad spectrum antibiotics, what's your go-to? I like to spend 15 minutes in the epic and looking at their all their past cultures and all this other stuff and try to make a you know, I like so you to make a more informed, yeah. yeah, you make a more yeah. informed guess rather than just use something. It's easier in Canada to swap it. Do you guys have more than penicillin? <laughs> <laughs> Bank and two rocks. <laughs> we ship the rest of the Mississippi mud up to Ottawa. Right, right. Method, sorry. So I, I think that makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the other thing to mention, so we did inverse probability weighting and then we did multiple imputation to address missing baseline confounders. And that was driven in large part by I wanted to include important potential risk factors or labs associated with AKI that we don't measure in everyone. So that's albumin, bilirubin. Those were the key things, lactate. Um, and then we had baseline vital signs missing in, in a few folks. And so to allow us to include those in our propensity score weighting, we needed to do the multiple imputation. So if I can go on, uh, Joel, you are okay with that? You understood something? So uh, well, I just decided that I'll never understand it, so we just might as well go on. How about that? Is that fair? Todd seems pretty smart. I'm just going to go with it, okay? Now, this is, it is pretty legit. I've heard about this before. I've never done it myself, but it, it does make a lot of sense. So, uh, in addition to that, they did a bunch of sensitivity analysis. You know, a couple of that I think we should think about where, uh, apart from, you know, restricting it to those who had overlapping propensity scores and so on, was some people got steroids. Uh, so, you know, steroids and sepsis are becoming more and more popular. Uh, and steroids A lot of people affect... got steroids. Right, right, exactly. So, uh, steroids uh, can affect cystatin C. So, they, they looked at that separately. They also looked at adjustment for calendar year. Again, we talked about practice, right? Who gets this antibiotic versus that? Was there a change over time? So, they did look at that in one of the sensitivity analysis. And they looked at, you know, KDGO defined AKI restricting follow-up to seven days, for example, and, and a bunch of other, you know, sensitivity analysis but those are the highlights for me. So I think we should uh, move on to results. Priya, hit us with some results. Okay, so uh, for the study population, again, this was part of the MESSI project at UPenn. They collected data from 2008 up to 2020. Looking at figure two, you can see that the study included 739 patients in the antibiotic cohort from the original number of 1293 before include exclusions. After that, they have 297 patients in the Piptazo arm and 442 in the vancomycin cefepime arm. And when they go ahead and weighted it, um, that's turning out to be 370 in the Piptazo arm and 369 in the cefepime arm. Of those patients, 192 had cystatin C plasma levels that were available for analysis. 72 of them were in the Piptazo arm and then 120 in the cefepime. Looking at the table one for the baseline characteristics, before waiting, the Piptazo set of patients had a higher severity of illness scores, lower baseline estimated GFR, 
a higher lactate concentration, and a higher frequency of diabetes and cirrhosis. After the weighting, however, uh, they were, of course, more balanced. So in the cystatin C subcohort, the baseline characteristics are shown in like supplementary table two, and there was only a minor imbalance between the two arms. It was noted to be in respiratory rate, hypertension, cancer, and solid organ transplant. But again, these covariates are noted in the modeling analysis that uh, we were discussing. So flash forward to day two, uh, the next step is to compare all the biomarkers of the plasma, and these are all seen in table two. So if we go ahead and look at the average creatinine levels across the board, in the antibiotic cohort, the piptazo group was found to have a higher average creatinine level, 1.35 versus 1.16 in the cefepime group, with a percent difference of about 8, 8%. And in the cystatin C cohort, the piptazo average creatinine was 1.46 versus 1.15 in the cefepime group, with a difference of almost 10%, 9.96% uh, to be exact. But when you're looking at the average cystatin C levels and the BUN levels between the two groups, they were not significantly lower in either one of those groups. So what we're seeing here is that the creatinine goes up a lot more in the piptazo group, but the cystatin C and the BUNs don't differ at all, whether they're on cefepime versus piptase. Correct. That's the, the key finding right here is that we see a bump in creatinine if they're on piptazo, but BUN and cystatin C don't move at all. This is the crude uh, difference, right? So this is before any of the inverse probability uh, weighting was done. This is just in, in the all, all comers who got this and who had a cystatin C measured. Am I right? Correct. Those were uh, before any type of weighting. So continuing on table two, if you go ahead and look at the cestatin C to creatinine ratio and the BUN to creatinine ratio. Oh my God. Every third year medical student is super excited to see the BUN creatinine ratio. Everybody thinks they're all pre-renal, right? Pre-renal. <laughs> oh, the BUN, the creatinine ratio is greater than 20. Give them some saline. What, yes. what are you guys doing? Yes. What's going on at <laughs> So they pretty much just like take anything and compare it to the creatinine and see what you get. So here they were looking at the cystatin C, and then the BUN to creatinine ratio. And these were significantly lower in the piptazo group versus the cefepime group, which kind of thinking about it kind of shows that the creatinine level was significantly greater than the actual cystatin C and BUN levels when you look at both arms. I'm not sure I understand why this cystatin C to creatinine and the BUN to creatinine is important here. We already have the raw creatinine has changed and the cystatin C and the BUN are not changed. Why, why do you feel you needed to use these ratios, Todd? So you sounded like one of the reviewers of this paper. I am. Actually, they I am. That, that, that that's my middle out. name is reviewer. Reviewer too. Uh, yeah. Don't fuck with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're very right. It's not essential to have this in the analysis. But one thing that bugged me about primary analysis is kind of a qualitative analysis where you are saying, all right, we see an association with creatinine, but no association with cystatin C, but that's obviously a function of sample size and the precision and the confidence intervals. And so that's not as rigorous. Ideally, what you want to do is have a quantitative, quantitatively examine, is the change in creatinine different than the change in cystatin C? Is the change in BUN different than the change in, in creatinine? And so one way to do that is with the ratio. And what we found was that th- those ratios, the ratio of cystatin C to creatinine, BUN to creatinine, 
were significantly lower in the piptazo arm compared to cefepime. And so the, the inference is that creatinine was increasing to a significantly greater extent than either of the comparator biomarkers. So the, the rationale for the ratios is to try to examine the hypothesis quantitatively rather than just qualitatively. That's good. I'll buy that. Yep, that's a good <laughs> Well, I had a lot of practice writing that in my response to the reviewer, so. <laughs> I thought I liked you until you called me reviewer too. <laughs> Moving on to table three, you can also see that the piptazo group has a higher frequency of creatinine increase, which was a rise of creatinine greater or equal to 50%, which was 18.12% in the piptazo group versus 9.7% in the cefepime group. And then when you looked at the cystatin C rate of rise, the potato group had similar frequency when compared to the cefepime group. So very similar. Again, the creatinine rise seems to be the more significant number of the three, the cystatin C, the creatinine, and the BUN. Hold on, hold on. I, wait, I'm looking at 50% increase in cystatin C with piptazo. It's 19% and 14% with Svenko and cefepime. Yeah. But I guess that didn't reach significance. Those are the crude numbers. Um, and so Those are the crude numbers. Yeah. So the crude, I think the crude incident rate ratio was around 1.4, 1, like 1. 1.3 something. Um, 1.37 for the cystatin C. After waiting, it was more or less null. After yeah, to 0.95. Got it, got it, got mm-hmm. it, got it, got it. That's what the waiting is very important. Okay, okay. And, you know, I think that's what you would expect to see that, you know, the piptazo patients were sicker at baseline. So you would expect to see a higher rate of true AKI in that group just based on their higher severity of illness. So so we needed to kind of account for that. And so that's why, you know, the weighted numbers are probably, you know, are the ones that, that that's where you, sh- you should focus on. Yeah, are people making the right decision? Is piptazo a better drug than cefepime? Let me ask you this. If you were to design a randomized trial, could you randomize patients to piptazo or cefepime or would that would that be problematic? I think you would have to identify a cohort where there were not clear indications for one or the other. So you probably would have to ex- exclude patients with me- suspected meningitis, for example, because you, know, you would definitely want to use cefepime there. But there's definitely a population where I would choose either one, you know, non-differentiated suspected sepsis. I, I would feel confident in either drug, but it may be it may be hard to have a randomized control trial nationally because probably depends on your pseudomonas resistance rates, you know, wherever you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Moving on to table four, which is showing us our clinical outcomes. We're again using crude numbers and then weighted numbers. The piptazo arm showed a significantly higher rate of the rise in creatinine at 14 days, with 42.1% of patients getting AKI in the piptazo arm versus 292 in the cefepime arm, which uh, when you weight it, the ratio is 1.34. If you look at the other clinical outcomes that SWAT mentioned earlier, AKI stage two or three, initiating or requiring any dialysis at 14 days, and then mortality at 30 days, that association essentially showed no significance for those clinical outcomes for those three. For mortality, it was 45.8% versus 34.2. But then when you go ahead and you weight that ratio, it comes out to be 1.05. So that was a little bit surprising for me. So you definitely get increase in creatinine, but when it comes down to the clinical outcomes, it seems like there isn't uh, much of a huge difference. 
And I think it's important to note the you know just how much the point estimates change from the crude analysis to the weighted analysis and so to me that reflects just the amount of confounding that was there at baseline and to your question of do we view piptazo and cefepime equally in terms of effectiveness and so you know i i think in general in terms of you know they're both bactericidal they're both broad spectrum i think in terms of effectiveness most clinicians would consider them to have equal effectiveness. And if that's true, then you could kind of view mortality as a negative control outcome. So a negative control outcome is something that that shares risk factors with the primary outcome, acute kidney injury. So there's an overlap in risk factors, but shouldn't be affected by the treatment. In this instance, if Piptazo and cefepime are equally effective, then mortality could fit that definition of a negative control outcome. And what you look for is a null association with the negative control outcome. And so you see in the crude analysis, there's a clear association between piptazo and mortality. But in the weighted analysis, that's almost fully attenuated. So it's, you know, we adjust that away. And so just showing that the analysis was, in fact, uh, you know, adjusting away a substantial amount of confounding. And then finally, uh, the last part of the results section is sensitivity analyses. Essentially, looking at all of the supplemental tables, results were minimally changed by propensity scoring trimming. The cystatin C results were similar after looking at the patients that received steroids, because we did discuss that a lot of patients in this study did get that. And that's a known problem with cystatin C. That cystatin C is affected by steroids, obesity, inflammation. Is there another big one? Those are the ones that I can think of off the top. Of my Diabetes, head. thyroid function, uh, malignancy. Thyroid function. Yep. Okay, but I think in in acute kidney injury, even though steroids are supposed to affect it, when you kind of it doesn't really seem to be clinically important. Todd, can you back me up on that, or am I? making shit up. So steroids definitely can cause an acute increase in cystatin C in the, you know, the 10 to 20% range. Now that that data is typically with very high doses. So that's been described in transplant populations where they're getting pulse dose methylpred at 500, you know, boluses of 500 and a thousand. The extent to which low dose hydrocortisone 50Q6 increases them is unclear. Now, inflammation also increases cystatin C levels. And and you can kind of see that in the baseline concentrations were, you know, fairly elevated, like at about 1.3 on average. Now, there there has been a a study that looking at cystatin C's association with acute kidney injury in septic versus non-septic patients and showing that it does retain strong associations independent of sepsis and and so that it you know it retains some diagnostic utility even in in septic patients but the absolute value may be increased even if there is no AKI for example just because of the underlying inflammation yeah yeah right so the baseline levels will be higher in in the context of inflammation of sepsis but you should still expect to see a change in response mm-hmm. to a kidney a change right. in kidney function but in this case you reran the studies, you controlled for the steroids, it didn't change your results at all. Correct. And did you rerun it for obesity or diabetes or thyroid function? We didn't. So we, but all those variables were included uh, in the, the inverse probability weighting. So to the extent the prevalence of obesity was balanced across the groups, you know, it, it shouldn't have differentially affected cystatin C 
change in in one group versus the other. Okay, Priya, finish this off. The last uh, sensitivity analysis that was conducted uh, was looking at a seven-day analysis of AKI, and that was shown to be similar to the original 14-day analysis that we chatted about earlier in regards to clinical outcomes. And that wraps up the results section. Priya, put it all together. What do, you, what do we see here? I think this was somewhat of an eye-opening paper for me. Vank and Piptazo, you know, we've all been using it. I think this kind of opens my eyes up to the use of cystatin C, especially in markers that we have available to us. We kind of discuss very briefly how we use this in the outpatient setting, but then of course the turnaround time of getting a lab back in the inpatient setting. So I question using cystatin C more in in research and other trials, how it's going to essentially change down the road and you know, five, 10 years? Is it going to be one of the new labs that we essentially use? Because, you know, creatinine and tubular secretion of that is going to be something that we keep in mind. Another thing that I wanted to keep in my head is with this paper, I also don't want to feel overconfident using Zosin and being like, oh, the increase in creatinine is only because of tubular secretion. Still have to, of course, take a step back and look at the whole patient. There's still AIN. There's still other things that can be going on. But this definitely helps me feel just a little bit more comfortable knowing that the kidney's function is probably doing okay just with the increase in creatinine. So that's really kind of what I took took from this. Just be a little bit more reflective of that and maybe get a cystatin C every once in a while. Who knows? Exactly right. So, you know, my initial reaction was, hey, you know, let's use vancopiptides in everyone. Forget about, you know, the AKI thing. But as Priya said, you know, if the creatinine will go up and is it true AKI or is it pseudo AKI? Uh, so, so it will still be a little bit messy. <laughs> so you have to, you know. Uh... <laughs> you did not use messy. You did not use messy again. So, so uh, you know, I, I, I'm still conflicted. I buy the results of this study completely. It fits with what we have thought. But I'm still a little bit, you know, having mixed feelings about using vancopiptides. Yeah, the biggest take home to me is that we need to be using cystatin C and frankly other biomarkers like NGAL, like Kim1, tubular biomarkers in yes, future yes. studies. Uh, you guys said it yourself, cefepime versus piperacillin tazobactam, fairly similar in terms of efficacy. I doubt, maybe I'm wrong, that there's a lot of people deciding between those regimens solely based on the risk of AKI and it's generally going to be based on disease processes, institutional policies, resistance rates, and whatnot. But I think what's more important is that how many other situations in medicine are going to fit this similar situation. Uh, so things like blood pressure control, medication use, decongestive therapy and heart failure, where you see creatinines go up, which is not necessarily reflective of true kidney injury. So I think uh, utilizing these biomarkers in future studies is going to be essential. So I, I question what this actually does regarding changing the piptazo when we see an increase in creatinine. Um, how many times do we see an increase in creatinine and we, we blame it on the piptazo and we change out our antibiotics? So does this actually cause a change in our infectious disease practice? Are we actually taking the piptazo off too soon and essentially giving patients incomplete courses of piptazo when they actually could probably stay on it for a little bit longer? So that kind of was something that I was thinking in my head is maybe we've been taking piptazo off too soon when it's actually just tubular secretion and not necessarily an, a true AKI. 
You know, it's funny. For 20 years, we've been complaining about how bad creatinine is in the evaluation of AKI. Lecture after lecture, oh, it's slow to rise. There's other problems with tubular secretion. And it's coming to bite us now, right? Now we have an effective antibiotic. And now we're like, I don't know. Is this really, is this nephrotoxicity? Is it pseudonephrotoxicity? And I honestly, I, I, it doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't feel like real nephrotoxicity because of the fact that, it, oh, it, it's only nephrotoxic if you include the vanco. You know, it's it's like, it's the vanco, guys. The vanco is the nephrotoxin. The piptazo is just a, just a passenger here. And there's going to be a signal because you are including vanco, right? But it's just, I'm very skeptical. And this kind of agrees with my pre- your priors, yeah. My priors, that's exactly right. Yeah. They agree with my priors, so I'm happy to agree with this. But um, because of the nature of the study, because we're using retrospective data, because we're using frozen serum, because only a few, not a few, but only a, a minority of the patients had the cystatin C, it just, we've been building our armamentarium of additional tools, whether it's cystatin C, whether it's what, what, what is what is nephrotic? I don't even know what cell cell See, cycle arrest. arrest. Cell cycle arrest, yeah. Tubular inhibitor yeah. of metalloproteinase. That that. Yeah. that. <laughs> it's time for us to be using these tools to really figure out whether we are dealing with real AKI, real decreases in GFR, or pseudo nephrotoxicity. One of the interesting things about this that we didn't talk about is the whole concept that if you are inhibiting tubular secretion of creatinine or inhibiting tubular secretion of other things and the whole concept that this may actually be nephroprotective in patients. Yeah, right. that's real. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a great point. That's a great point. In the animal models that have examined this question, that's in fact what they show. So Mark Sheets looked at creatinine, but also looked at Chem1 and clustrin. And what they found was that vancomycin administration clearly increased Chem1 you know, so evidence of nephrotoxicity. And that when you combined piptazo, it delayed the onset of of injury. Piptazo and vancomycin clearly bind to oats, the, the organic anion transporters, oat one and oat three, to the extent that that contributes to vancomycin intracellular accumulation. If piptazo is, is blocking that, then it's just slowing the rate of intracellular accumulation, which is the rate limiting step of, of toxicity. So you could be seeing an increase in creatinine while piptazo is also having a nephroprotective effect is, is certainly possible. Right. And that was also seen with aminoglycosides. I know that Josh Farkas talked about that in his, his initial blog post. And then did we talk about the, there was a Kaplan-Meier component where there was a rapid drop in the creatinine or the rapid rise in creatinine, the very quick change in creatinine. Did we address that? We did look at a Kaplan-Meier analysis of Kidigo-defined creatinine AKI. Basically, all the separation occurred within the first two to three days. And so the question is, is that a plausible time frame for true nephrotoxicity to occur? Or is that a time frame more consistent with inhibition of creatinine secretion, which you would expect to happen much more rapidly? Now, it could also reflect baseline differences in severity of illness that's driving some of that as well because you know the the, the piptazo patients were were sicker at baseline swap do you have any final thoughts yeah so i think creatinine is a very messy biomarker uh, and we need something clean and, and dirty nice and, and and yeah it's dirty you could say dirty <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so sister so in cmin we have been talking about it in ckd uh, but i'm i'm more and more coming around to the case that we should be uh, thinking about using it in akai we just have to you know start using it and bring the cost down the cost is like 10 times higher than creatinine which is a big and there's only one assay and at least in canada there's only one manufacturer uh, or maker of that assay so we just need to ramp up the quantity and bring down the cost and make it more affordable I would endorse that. I, w- w- I had a, a, a discussion with our lab director and, you know, I had said, what would it take to bring this in-house um, where we could have rapid turnaround? And, and she said, well, if people start using it enough, then we would bring it in-house. So I, I, I think that's, yeah, we, we just need to start using it. You know, I, I agree with everything you guys said. Creatinine is a terrible marker. We have these other markers out there and we just need to figure out use cases for, you know, when does it make sense? And and I think that's a still a big question to make it cost effective. It's like, you know, how do we use these in a cost effective manner? I don't think it would ever make sense to necessarily measure cell cycle arrest markers in NGAL in, in all patients routinely. But when do we do it? Th- those are the studies that we really need to be working, you know, focusing on now. Speaking of future studies, Todd, where are you going with this? What's next? Additional perspective studies of measuring kidney uh, injury biomarkers in patients on this drug combination and, and other nephrotoxins to try to you know help figure out how you know how to use these novel biomarkers in in a cost effective manner to in you know improve outcomes. We we talked about cost and you know oh we need you know there are these imperfections and cystadin C has got you know these problems and inflammation and steroids but look at the cardiologists right uh, when I was in med school they were using CK I don't know if you have heard about CK for for heart attacks uh, uh, Nayan and Priya but there was this thing called <laughs> CK uh, that we used to do if someone I think comes I in read with it. chest pain yeah I read it in a history book once exactly so <laughs> people would come in with chest pain and we would measure CK and there was MM and MB and BB uh, subfractions and they moved on to troponin and, and troponin I troponin T you just move on you get a better myomarker you change you do studies like we have done so many cystadin C studies and we are still stuck on creatinine and we keep making excuses saying ah oh, it's not not perfect it's not perfect just let's move on like the race stuff the ethnicity stuff is compelling enough in in the chronic yeah. kidney disease setting but there are all these other you know reasons uh, to move on uh, we should just start and see let's do it you almost wonder if the fact that it's in this chem 7 which is such a standard part of hospitalization is preventing us from moving forward like if the ckmb was in the chem 7 we might still be checking car attacks that way yeah no that's a great point that you know issues of billing come into play you know because like the chem 7 is like one of those things that medicare will reimburse but other you know other panels they won't reimburse and so that you know like that that's a big hurdle to get cystatin c measured routinely Okay. Any other final thoughts on this? I think I think we did a nice job on this. It's a study that really looks to exonerate this vancopiptazo story. It's certainly not conclusive. It's not perspective. It's not randomized. It has all those limitations, but it's pretty compelling. And it agrees with kind of the previously established mechanism for why this may not be nephrotoxic. It kind of fits in every one of those boxes. But of course, Todd said that that it just agreed with his prior. So he designed a study to prove what he already thought. So I want to say, I find myself needing to caution. I feel too many people are taking this as this closes the book on the question. And it certainly doesn't do that. I mean, we had cystatin C in 192 patients. And as you say, the, the 
the results are really interesting. They're compelling. But, you know, if this were not my study, if I were reading someone else's study, right, I in no way would I say this is enough to change practice. So it's certainly not definitive. But, you know, I, I think hopefully it, it brings us back towards equi- clinical equipoise where, you know, I think before our study, it was becoming dogma in, in some ways that we just assumed, yes, it's a nephrotoxic combination. Now, I, I think it's much more reasonable to question whether or not that's, you know, that's an actual true thing. Is this going to be the next Venus contrast debate? Uh, well, I hope so. <laughs> you know, Ho- hopefully, I, I, no, right? Hope, yeah, the contrast thing went on too long. This will hopefully be shorter, and let's be done with it. To me, this is enough equipoise that it really calls for a, a, a good randomized perspective trial. Let's get the let's get the right data done and get to our answer. Like you know, honestly, if the preserve trial had been done ten years before, we would have we would have saved a lot of meta analysis on uh, on bicarbon. I mean, I I don't know. The the RCT would be difficult, right? As Nayan has been talking about, you know, antibiotic patterns are so variable. Huh? It, it will not be easy. Some centers probably don't use vancopeptase at all. And then it'll be hard to randomize patients there to vancopeptase. It's, it's not an easy trial. It's easy to say, let's do RCTs. Uh, and, you know, RCTs are the pinnacle of our, you know, pledge drive. Uh, they are the best quality evidence, but it's not that easy, I, I think. Okay, tubular secretion swap, what do you got? So uh, last week I was in uh, San Diego. This was the American Heart Association hypertension sessions. Uh, This was my first in-person conference since 2019 and uh, yeah it was it was wonderful i mean other people have been there and again i'm not saying we should be doing in person and you know remote conferences are fabulous you don't want to necessarily fly all over the world and you know burn more carbon but it, it really felt good to meet friends and chat with them uh, and san diego has fabulous weather right it made me question my faith in moving to ottawa in the first place for a few days <laughs> so i'm really looking forward to kidney week Excellent. Excellent. That's coming up. Kidding week should be great. Bria, what do you got? I have picked back up on reading ever since I finished my training. And it's it's kind of nice to just like read, you know, right before bed, a couple pages here and there. So I'm currently reading Sharp Objects. There's a show on Hulu, essentially. So I wanted to read the book before or not who or wherever it is, but I wanted to read the book before I watch it. And there's this app that does like buddy reads, essentially. So you go ahead and you just like tally, you know, how many pages you get in the book. And then you share this with, you know, say a book club or a group of people, and then you make comments. So when other people get to say 50, page 50 or whatever, that comment pops up on the on the actual app. So um, I'm using Goodreads right now, which seems to be okay. But if anyone has any other ideas of a good buddy read or a book club type of app, you know, but yeah, reading is great. Continue to do it. That's what I put on every single, you know, eval, right? But you should also do it outside of work too. Nine, what do you got? So a couple months ago, we did a guy's trip to Bandon Dunes. And the only people that know about Bandon Dunes are people that play golf. That's the only reason to go there. And it is, if you've never been there, this is my first time. This is the Disney World of Golf for adults. There's, there's, <laughs> without the depression of Disney World. I mean, this is five 18 hole golf courses that are all ranked in like the top 15 courses in the country there's a 13 hole par three course and it everything there is designed around golf if you're not playing golf 
you're sitting around drinking, eating, talking about golf from the lodging to the buses that take you around to the bars. Everything is centered around golf. If you haven't been there, it's hard to get to, but totally worth your time. Sounds amazing. Excellent. Excellent. Todd, you're a golfer also. Yeah. In August, we took our vacation down in Kiwa Island, which is another golfing destination. We played the the ocean course, which is where they- Hardest played, course in the country. They played the PGA Championship there last year. It's the hard, the highest rated, the most difficult rated course. And uh, it was, you know, it was amazing. I brought a couple extra buckets of balls to get through the rounds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you got to plan, you got to plan appropriately when you play that course but uh it's it's along the ocean so it's you know very scenic and uh had had a great time excellent excellent my daughter turned me on to this app called be real do you guys know this app be real i've heard people i've heard of it yeah tweeting about be real but i had no idea what it means yeah so the idea here is that instagram you have this perfect version of yourself where you take these great photos and be real is an app that at some random portion of the day, the alarm will go off and you have two minutes to take a photo. And when you take the photo, it takes two photos. It takes one with the front camera and one with the back camera. So you get a selfie and whatever you're looking at. And it's supposed to be real and show you what your real life is. And I think it's pretty fun. It's And, and I am enjoying getting to see my daughter's life because I'm her be real friend now. And it seems to really kind of address one of these pretty think, important yeah. concerns about social media. I, 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 I'm buying it.